Well, good evening. It is, uh, it is good to be here with all of you tonight, and uh, what a winner so far. Anybody else have some perilous drives getting here? Um, well, as, as Mike said, my name is, is Jim Murphy, and I have the privilege of uh, being one of the elders at, at Missio. And uh, it's just, uh, we, we are so encouraged by what God is doing here at Renovation Church. It's, it, it is exciting to see how, how uh, God is moving in and through the group of people here uh, to really be a part of what God is doing in these northern suburbs among the 80,000 plus people that are here. And so know that, that we pray for you at Missio. Uh, we thank God for you. And we are just uh, excited about what he's doing and what he will do in and through this body uh, as he uses you for his glory here uh, to give every man, woman, and child in this geography a repeated opportunity to know the glorious gospel, which truly is the only hope for every man, woman, and child. And so we just thank you for your efforts. We thank you for your faithfulness to Jesus. We thank you for being a part of what God is doing here. Uh, and we thank you for uh, coming and, and worshiping even in the midst of uh, really big sporting events. And so so we're, we're grateful that, that you're here. Uh, but tonight, what we're going to talk about is a subject that when I first uh, heard this, uh, it, it, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of slow, uh, but it, it, it shook me. It rocked my world as I began to think about the implications of what is the nature and the purpose of the church. Uh, the way that I grew up, when I heard of the word church, there were, there, there were specific images that would come into my mind. Um, and it was things like this when I was younger. It was the place that I had to white knuckle for an hour to be quiet so I could get donuts afterwards. It was the place that when I heard in my white knuckling, it made me terrified of my father who would get very angry with me if I didn't sit quietly for an hour. It was a place that, I, that, that when I thought of the word church, there was a, a typical voice that came with it. This is how you talk in church. And it's typically with this type of a face. Everything in your life could be completely going in chaos, but when you walked into church, you had a reverent voice and you were always happy. That you, you know, it was a place where there were church clothes, there was church music, there was church coffee, there was church felt. There was all these things, and it had to do with a building. But as we look at the scriptures of what the church really is and what the purpose of this church is, it began to, to, to shape and change some important things in me. And I pray that as we surrender ourselves to what the scriptures have to say about what the nature of the church is and what the purpose of the church is, that you begin to wrestle with the implications of what these biblical truths are in two ways. Number one, for you as a body. And number two, for you as a person and as a family unit. And when we think about the nature of something, we look at what is it made of? What does it consist of? What are the things that brought it together to make it what it is? And then you ask the second question, well, why were those things brought together? Why, did those, why is the church made up of these things? And what is its purpose 
in the world today. And so what we're going to be looking at primarily is Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. And so so we can get started right away. Uh, Let's look at what God's Word has to say. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first 10 verses. I'm going to make some commentary on it. Then we're going to continue to go on. And I'll make some commentary on it as opposed to just reading it all and then going back. So let's look at what Paul tells us as he writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says this, this is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses in sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is so many things that we could say about this rich, rich passage and this powerful teaching. But one of the first things that as we come to this question, what is the nature of the church? What does it consist of? What is it made of? What is it that has brought the church together? Is this understanding that it is first and foremost a people saved by grace. This is critical for us to understand because if we look at this idea of grace, it is something that that, that we need to wrap our minds around that God is not obligated to give us this grace. Because if He was obligated to give us mercy and grace, it is no longer mercy and grace. It is a free gift that He has given us out of His love and out of His kindness for what He made that He says, though you are dead in your trespasses, and your sins, though you are, are hostile to me, though there is nothing within you that is deserving of this forgiveness, there is nothing within you that is deserving of this grace, and you actually, by your very nature, are objects of my wrath, but because of my great love for you, I'm going to offer you grace in my Son, Jesus Christ. That, that this church is saved. That, it is, that what that means is you're saved from being an object of God's wrath to now you are an object of His mercy, an object of His grace. Though you were dead, though you were enslaved to your trespasses and sins, and we liked it. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for that sin by sending my son Jesus to die on a cross for you. That though you deserved wrath, I will send my son Jesus to pour my wrath out on him so that you, by faith, may be saved in his work. And so the first thing that we need to understand is that the church is a people saved by grace. That there is nothing inherently special 
in us apart from the grace of God. When Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 25 about separating the sheep from the goats, and you've got the sheep on one hand that are his people, and you have the goats on the other hand that are those that are not his people, the only difference between the sheep and the goats is that the sheep have been covered by his grace. You take your grace away from the sheep and they're just goats. And so this church, what has brought it together, what has saved it, is grace. Be marveled at this. Do not take the grace of God for granted because He did not have to extend this great gift to us. And it is out of His great love that He extends this grace. The first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 paint a hopeless picture about who we are and who people are apart from God. But verse 4 We cannot overstate, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If we're not careful, if we're around the church for any length of time, we will very easily take this great grace for granted. And it is a profound gift. And when we never forget that we have been saved by grace, we will never be able to take a posture of superiority over anyone. Whether it's someone that doesn't know Christ, that is making horrific decisions, that they're living a lifestyle that we have, have just, just can't understand, or when we look at others in the church that, that we recognize, you know what? I was an object of God's wrath. I was enslaved to the passions of my flesh. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and yet God has given me great grace. And so that gives us a joy and humility. So the first thing that Paul tells us in this chapter is he begins to highlight for us what the nature of the church is, is we are a people saved by grace. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he, sort of, and, and he picks back up the theme of the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, reminding the church at Ephesus again about who they were apart from Jesus. And he says, therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one, or remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So he goes to this church, and, and we have to remember that this church is, is made up of Gentile believers, and, and in this world, you had Jews and you had Gentiles. The Jews were the people that God had chosen, that he had, that, that he had, had chosen and given them their promises, and they were, for all intents and purposes, near to God because God had given them the revelation, God had given them the covenant promises, God had given them the Ten Commandments. And the Gentiles, he, we, we're, we, he's reminding them, remember, you had no take in that. And I think he sums up all of our dispositions apart from Jesus when he says you are in this world without God and without hope. That you had no access to him. And not only that, but there was this great dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But this people who have been saved by grace are also a people who have been given peace. That the church, the nature of the church is saved by grace and who have been given peace. And what we are told in this passage is that we, are been, that we have been given peace with one another. That the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between you and me. He highlights this very dramatically as he speaks to Gentiles. And he says, you who were far off. Have been, brought ne- have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And you who have been brought near, who thought you had it, you have been now redeemed through the same cross that redeems the Gentiles. And because both of you have been saved by grace, that he's creating one new man, one new body. It is no longer Jew and Gentile. But Paul goes on to highlight this elsewhere, where there's no, there's no longer slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all unified in Jesus Christ because we are all saved by his blood. We are all saved through the cross. We have all been given new life because of the work that he has done and his resurrection from the grave and so the church has been given peace with one another because our eyes are fixed on Jesus our community should reflect that we recognize there is one Lord one faith one baptism one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all the way our community demonstrates the gospel is profound And it is sad when God looks at his people and they split churches over the color of carpeting. When they split over worship styles. When the blood of Christ and the suffering of his cross has brought us together. And as if it doesn't get any more amazing than that, we see the greatest gift of the gospel and not only have we been had peace with one another but we now have peace with God we who were objects of his wrath God has satisfied that wrath on the person of Jesus Christ and he now looks at those who have been saved by grace and listen to this for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. The greatest gift of the gospel is that we have access to God who has made peace with us. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, 
through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's incredible news. As I talk with people all over the place, as I think of my own family, as I think of my own journey, we desperately want peace with our Maker. And Paul tells us that one of the the primary markers of the church that has been saved by grace is we have been given the great gift of peace. That we can, as Paul says uh, later in Ephesians 3, we have, because of Christ, bold access to the very presence of Almighty God. We are a people of peace. And this people who have been saved by grace, this people who have been given peace, now he, he, he begins to talk about this, this new identity. And listen to what he says starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There are powerful truths in here about who the church is. And let's not miss this. So what does he say about this new identity that had been given to us? What does he say about this new man that he's created where he has taken Jews and Gentiles, people from all over the world, and is bringing them together into this new body, this new man called the church that has been saved by grace, has been given peace, that this people, this group, is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That we who are far off, who had no stake in the promises and kingdom of God, have been redeemed through Jesus Christ into the kingdom of God. I just left the country a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things when I leave the country is is that, uh, maybe I'm just kind of silly, but I feel exposed. (laughs) I feel a little dangerous. Or not that I'm dangerous, but I just feel like I'm outside of my kingdom. I'm outside of the protection of what, America has to offer and I always have this fear like what if I do something wrong like like the people like that guy in Singapore a couple years ago that that put gum on the sidewalk or whatever and got caned five times or something it's like I want the protection of my kingdom (laughs) that I'm a part of and when we are 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 brought near by the blood of Jesus we are citizens in the kingdom of heaven which means we have a king that reigns over us it means we have a king that protects us it means that we have a king and we have full rights of that citizenship that we are no longer of this world that we our citizenship is now found primarily in the kingdom of God and where he dwells And not only that, but this new identity that we are members of God's household. This is familial language. One of the primary metaphors that God gives for us in the scriptures is Father. And so if you think about this, that we have been adopted in, we are told in the scriptures. That we have been given full rights as sons and daughters, just as Jesus has. That we are seated, we're told in Ephesians 2, seated with Christ in the heavenly places that you are not treated like just some stepchild that barely makes it in. 
but you have been given in, 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 as a citizen and as his child that you, think about this, 1 John 1, or uh, the, the Gospel of John chapter 1 says that to those who receive Jesus Christ have been given the right to become sons of God. Think about that. That, that your Father in heaven leads you and guides you, instructs you, protects you. He is a good and gracious Father that looks over His family. He is a good and righteous King that sits on a foundation of righteousness and justice. And you sit in that kingdom where He sits enthroned as King forever and always will. And you are secure in that family and you are secure in that citizenship. And He says that this, that this citizenship and this family are built on something. Now he begins to shift the metaphor to a building language. And he says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so a part of this new identity is that we are built on God's revealed truth, we stand on something solid. We stand on something sure. We stand on the very words of God that He has revealed to us through the apostles and the prophets that heaven and earth may pass away, but His word remains. We stand on the foundation that Jesus says that the foolish builder builds his house on, on, on sand and that when troubles come, the sand erodes away and he has nothing to stand on. But when we build our lives, when we are rooted on the truth of God's word, no matter what may come, we stand. And we are built on the word of God. Which is why one of the core values we have here is we want to honor God and value Him above all else because He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is good and He does good. He is the one that we should adore with every aspect of our lives for who He is and what He has done and that we as a people also stand on truth. God, truth, love, and mission. We stand on the truth. Not because we think it's a clever idea. It's because that's a part of our new identity as the church. And we see that this foundation is not only the truth, but it's the, uh, the, in His revealed Word through the apostles and the prophets, but Christ Jesus Himself is the cornerstone. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. And so the truth, Jesus Christ, stands as the cornerstone which sets the tone and the pattern for the entire structure. Buildings were laid out by the cornerstone. It was the first stone laid. It was the one to which every other stone set its pattern from. And so Jesus Christ of this citizenship, of this family that is built on truth, has Jesus Christ as its chief architectural design. And we together are meant to look like Jesus. That we look like Jesus with our decisions. We look like Jesus with the way that we are on mission. We look like Jesus with the way we love each other and the way we love a lost world. We are not here to, to, to pander to our own little whims and what we want. We are to surrender ourselves to the truth of God's word. We, we are to be in awe of his grace and say, God, our primary question is what do you want? Not what do I want? The church is meant to look like Jesus. 
As Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he calls it the visible church. I love this picture when he talked about when Jesus incarnated and he walked the, and he walked the earth, that, that his body took up space. And you could see it. You could see his works. You could see him do things. You could hear his voice talk. Now that he has gone and ascended to the Father and is seated at his right hand, he has not left us as orphans, but he has deposited his spirit, which we're going to get to in more fullness here in a moment, into each and every one of his people. And that we now are his body, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, that we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, and that we as the church are to be the visible church, doing his works, proclaiming the kingdom, and modeling what we do and how we think and what we say after Jesus. That's the nature of the church. It's not about programs or buildings or service times or, or worship styles. It is about looking like Jesus. Every day, every moment, as we sit in awe of His grace, not taking for granted the great peace that He's given us between ourselves and with Him. And as if it doesn't get any better than that, what he, he goes on to say that this, that this citizenship, that this family is built on this truth, meant to look like Jesus, but we are also a temple. Paul is getting scandalous here. We may not be able to, to, to grapple with the full scandal of what Paul is saying here, but this infuriated the Jews of his day. Where he says that, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, what does that mean? It means the whole church. The whole church. Every person saved by grace. Every person that has been brought near by the blood of Jesus. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this new identity is a holy temple. Think about this, this idea. If you know anything about the Old Testament, what do we see? We see that the temple was the place in Jerusalem where the very presence of God dwelled in the midst of the Holy of Holies. It's where heaven and earth touched. It was the presence of God in the midst of His people. If you take it back even further to the tabernacle which traveled with the Israelites, it was also a, a, a portable temple that had the Holy of Holies in it that again is where heaven and earth touched. It is where the very presence of God was. And Jordan and I have talked about this many times and I love the way he talks about this. It's like as the Israelites went from place to place and this and that and they were a portable people with a portable temple with God leading them that the nation saw them and trembled and feared. Why? Because the Israelites were something? No. They were fearful and in awe of the God that was in their midst. And so now, Paul looks at this and says, the church is the very temple of God where heaven and earth meets. It's the very place where, think about this, Jesus says, it's better that I go. So I will give you my spirit who will dwell in you. So now I'm going to take my presence from this temple in the Holy of Holies, and I'm going to take it and I'm going to deposit it in my people. That now I'm putting my temple back 
on the move. Not from a place that you tear down like in a tent and you walk it from place to, but everywhere you, everywhere my people walk, everywhere my people go, there I am. And that when people see you, when people see your family, when people see you as a corporate body, they are to see my presence with you. As you look like the chief architectural design, Jesus. You are now the holy of holies. Do not let that truth escape you. You, where you sit, you and I, who were by nature objects of God's wrath, You and I who were dead in our sins and trespasses. You and I who were enslaved by Satan. And you and I who were enslaved by the passions of our flesh and loved it. God says grace, peace, you belong to me. And I'm taking that and washing the inside of that cup. And I'm depositing my spirit in you. I had a guy tell me a couple of, uh, or not that long ago, that he's a follower of Christ, and he says, man, I wish God would do something in my workplace. I wish God would save some people. I wish he, he would do something. I wish he would show up in my workplace. And I looked right at him, and I said, you work there, right? And he said, yeah, I work there. I said, well, then there's an identity problem that you have because he has done something. He died on the cross and rose again. He's deposited his spirit in you, washed you with grace, given you peace. You are now his citizen. In, you, you are citizen in, in heaven. You are a part of his family. You are built on truth. You are meant to look like Jesus. And he has put his spirit in you and sent you to your workplace. Don't look for someone else. You are his representative there. If we're not careful, church is only going to be the hour and a half you spend here. If you and I don't understand the profundity of this truth, church will be nothing more than a program. It will be nothing more than a couple meetings you go to. When it is who we are. I was just in a place, Jordan and I were just in a place where the church has been told you cannot gather in large groups. And the church is spreading everywhere in this place. Not through grand worship services, but in and through His people. One ministry we talked to had 80 house churches. Six thousand people have come to Christ through this house church movement. Through everyday, ordinary people who are who I'm describing out of Ephesians chapter 2. One of my mentors, one of our mentors, Dwight Smith says, the power of the church is not in in its extraordinariness, it's in its ordinariness. It's in the people of God recognizing who they are in Christ and beginning to live that out every day, everywhere they go. That's the nature of the church, what we're talking about here. 
And so the question is, if we, if we really begin to understand what the nature of the church is, I think it is important to then ask the question, why did God do this? What, what is his purpose for doing this? And if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, one of the phrases that you will see over and over and over and over again is, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. We go to the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians where he has finished writing this grand theology of the gospel and the nature of the church and the purpose of the church. The only thing Paul can think to do as being inspired by the Spirit is to write verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The number one reason why God does this, why He saves us like this, why the church is made up of, of this type of people is to the praise of His glorious grace. That you and I who do not deserve this, you and I who were so far from this, it's not even funny that He has brought us near. And we also get another window into why He does this. That He gets grace as He puts on display in the midst of these undeserving people the immeasurable riches of His, of his grace and kindness toward us who believe. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 7, as he's talking about grace, and, he, and he's talking about these blessings that we've been made alive together with Christ, that it's by grace you've been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is a day as the, as the church sits on this world and cosmic stage for demons in hell, for angels in heaven, for every man, woman, and child that looks at this church that no one will be able to say God is not kind. No one will be able to say He is not rich in mercy. No one will be able to say that He was powerless to save because the church will stand up and say otherwise. God will point to us and go, look at the kindness I've extended to them. Look at though they were not deserving, though they were dead in their trespasses and sins, though they were objects of my wrath, look at what I've done in these people. We think our salvation is about us. Don't take this the wrong way, but it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with you and that God loves you. He has redeemed you back to himself. He has given you great gifts, great things because your father loves you, but he places you on the midst of this cosmic stage and says, to the praise of my glorious grace, I have saved you. And we look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, and we get another image that, that where, where Paul says this. I'm going to start with verse 8. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now here it is. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities 
and the heavenly places. So why did God do this? To the praise of His glorious grace. How does He get great glory? Because He can point to the church and say, look at the immeasurable riches of my grace and kindness towards them. And I'm also setting them out on the midst of this cosmic stage to show the manifold wisdom of my life. It's manifold because it's multi-layered. It's multi-colored. And so each and every one of us, we, we are all saved by the same blood of Christ. We are all redeemed by the same grace in Christ. We have all been given the same peace in Christ. We have all been brought near to the same God in Christ. But each one of us, that grace and that peace and this mercy and this goodness has a little bit different display than the other one. Because your life is different than my life. And my life is different than your life. And so we stand out and we show that God's grace is able to cover all of us all of us the same mentor Dwight Smith talks about that on the canvas of time as all of human history moves forward that each person in the church is a brush stroke of his grace and each brush stroke on that canvas of time as we stand back and look at it that that, that story is to the praise of His glory. And each one of us plays a part in that. And think about this, that this is on display for the rulers and principalities in the heavenly realms. And just think about this for a minute. I don't fully understand what this verse means. But here's what I do know. That as the church stands out, that the demons in hell look at us and they go, I know them. I know that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. I know that they hated you, God. I know that, that they were objects of your wrath. I know that they were blind to seeing the excellencies of Christ. And they see the power of God being demonstrated in the salvation of the church. And they shudder with fear before the power of God in redeeming the church. And in like manner, the angels in heaven look at the church and they know all the same things about you and I. And they see the power of God being demonstrated in the salvation of the church that we've been moved from death to life. And they worship in awe. In the same way, wherever we go, in the midst of the 80,000 people that live in these northern suburbs, that we are to stand out declaring the goodness and glory of our God in our workplaces, in our schools, where we work out, in the neighborhoods we live in, that we stand out being who God has called us to be. Giving them an opportunity to see the gospel on display in our lives so that it comes to a point where they're able to hear the gospel so that they can embrace the gospel and they can be a part of the church as well. We need to be careful, church, of not thinking that, that we are only successful if we have a great holy huddle. That what brings us together is community. And if we focus on that, everything will be okay. When the reality is we cannot lose sight of the mission of God. We cannot lose sight that God has put His church on display. 
We cannot lose sight of the fact that God has put his temple on the move in each and every one of our lives and has scattered us all throughout this city, all throughout this county, all throughout this world to give every man, woman, and child a repeated opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it without coming or going anywhere. It's critically important that we understand this because what the nature in the church shows us and what the purpose of the church shows us is that it is a restoration back to why we were created. And we were created to know our God. Relationship. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. One of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons why we are made in His image is so that we can know Him. That we can be with Him. And he also tells us, as he gives this mandate to Adam and Eve, to take what they have in the garden and spread it all over the world, that we're also here to represent him in the world. We cannot separate the mission from the church. We cannot separate that we were saved for relationship with the church. Look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says as he talks about this new identity Starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what we've been talking about. The nature of the church is the new creation that he's given us in Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how he tethers this new creation that Paul highlights for us in Ephesians chapter 2 as we look at the reason why he did this in, 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 in verses like to the praise of his glorious grace so that in the coming ages he can point to the immeasurable riches of his kindness and grace so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be displayed that we look at this in light of what 2 Corinthians 5 says that this new creation part of that is you've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation you've been entrusted with the gospel message God is making his appearance Heal through us. It's amazing. He doesn't have to work through us, but He chooses to work through us. This is why we believe that whatever God is going to do in the world, He's primarily going to do it through all of Christ's people. People that know who they are in Christ. People that recognize their new identity. People that are able to, to think deeper about what the nature of the church is and what the purpose of that is. To know God and to represent Him in the world. May missio and may restoration and may every church that stands on the gospel have a biblical view of what this whole thing is about. Not our own. May we not ask what we want. 
May the foundation point of our life, may the starting point question be for us, what does God want? What does God want? And then may we begin to walk in obedience to what He has so clearly told us. So please don't ever think that if you are in Christ, that church is just an event. Don't ever think that it's just what's done in a room. This is great. Coming together and celebrating the goodness of our God and proclaiming and heralding the Word of God together. But make no mistake about it that the church is a people. And we're told in Ephesians 2 that Jesus right now is that this temple rises, which means it's growing. Which means God is building His church still. That He is fitting stones together. And He is taking lost and putting them a part of this. And that we all get to participate in that. May our view of the church expand mightily according to what God has said. And let's leave this place being and living out our new nature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus. And we thank You for these incredible truths that that we who did not deserve it have been given grace. Not because of what we have done, but because of Jesus. God, we thank You that You have given us peace with one another and may the community here reflect that peace. May we never forget that, God, You have given us peace with Yourself and we have access to You. What a truth, Father. May we live as if our citizenship is truly in heaven. May we live as if we are truly Your children. God, may we as Your people look like Jesus. And God, may we remember that You have not left us as orphans, but You've deposited Your Spirit within us. And everywhere that we go, You go. And that You have sent us into this world as representations of You because, God, You are still building Your church. And may our agendas be, whatever we do, be to know You first above all things and to see You glorified above all things. And God, may we also be on mission with You as Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.